and me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Right now, I will be finishing my look at The Group by Mary McCarthy. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure how long this will take, but I just want to kind of go through what else is in this novel in the last five chapters of The Group. I think by now we've met most of the characters. There's one, Lakey, who kind of is gone for most of the story and she comes back quite changed. So that's something we're going to have to talk about. But by and large, we know the characters, we know their situations, and we know their major struggles, right? So there's a few plot points uh, that I think are kind of relevant and interesting in the last third of the novel. And I'll just give you my overall review and thoughts about about the group. I, I do think this is just a wonderful novel. I think it's the best of the ones we've read so far. It's the most political it's in many ways the most engaging. The, the struggles that these women go through are so relevant, uh, you know, especially in the 60s. Even though it's set in the 30s, you know, these were things women in the 60s were still struggling with, like access to birth control, equality within marriages, um, the monogamy, double standard, uh, what else? Uh, you know, inequality in the job, the difficulty of educated women getting jobs of equal standing of men with similar degrees. All these things. And Mary McCarthy, you know, in a lot of her other novels, she puts, she deals with groups, right? She often does that, even though this book's, this book's called The Group. In most of her novels up to this point, she deals with groups, right? Like in The Groves of Academe, in The Oasis, and The Charmed Life. Even in the company she keeps, in a, in a way, they're, they're about groups of people. And those groups are always kind of dysfunctional, right? I just uploaded the episode on The Groves of Academe. And, you know, the comment I made there uh, on Twitter... When I posted that, that that episode is like the whole is less than some of the some of the parts, right? That's the feeling I get with a lot of these groups that she deals with. That's that may be the case with this as well. I mean, there, it, this isn't as much of a coherent group in one place with one culture. These are all very different women from different standards, different different standards of living, different career paths, or whatever. So they are quite distinct, but they're all kind of facing a set of problems that are facing the American like co collectively it is the the like the middle class American woman right the, who is the real fuel for second wave feminism in a lot of ways so it, it kind of works that now this group a little bit you know it's not so much mocking the group though as in some of the other novels like in Girls of Academe or the Oasis the group really becomes comical and silly and, and kind of petty and weird you don't feel that as much here, but because partially it's not because the group's tied together. They're all doing their own thing. So this is, even though it's called the group, it's the least groupy of, of the novels by her that we've read so far, I think, because it does have these characters branch out. And they intersect, they, they interweave in interesting ways, and I, I, I like how she does it. But at, except for the, the wedding and the funeral, that book and the novel, they're never like in one place altogether. Well, anyways, obviously if you've been listening along, you know I love this novel, and I think it's really great. So um, that's my overall review of it. But I do think it's, we can talk through the, the final plot points. I think there's not that much to talk about. 
Um, but it does finish the arcs of a few characters. And, and the one we start with is my favorite character in the novel, and that's Polly Andrews. I think she has the most interesting story. Maybe it's because I'm on the left, and, and she's on the left. She's like, um, you know, she is um, the most working class. There, there's another character who is involved in New Deal politics, so she's kind of tied to the Depression more. But I think Polly Andrews is the character that is most connected directly to the Great Depression, right? Both in her, her, in her the people in her life. Um, her father, for instance, is, I think he's a Trotskyist. Her lover, Gus, uh, Gus Leroy, Gus Leroy, who is, of course, Libby's employer until he fired her. So just because he was a leftist, just because he was a Stalinist, didn't mean he was, you know, he, he was there on gender equality. But, uh, you know, she, so she's surrounded by socialists and she lives in a working class community with a lot of socialists, right? And this is the time when the working class was being moved towards socialism, right? You have the CIO, very radical union. You have expansion of the Communist Party in America. So there's a lot of working class radical politics going on um, in response to the Great Depression when this novel is set. I think the novel itself is set between 1933 and like 39 or 40. So when the novel ends, like the war is beginning in Europe. So it, it really covers much of the Great Depression, or at least the, the first two terms of Roosevelt are, are the time period of the novel. But she's surrounded by these leftists and radicals, and she herself is, is sympathetic to those ideas. She's not as consciously, I think, and aggressively a radical like some of the people in her life. Um, she's actually seems more interested in psychoanalysis, and that's the thing she sort of studies, partially because Gus Leroy, we find out in Chapter 11, is going to a therapist himself, and, and she thinks it's a bit silly to spend the money doing that, but she eventually kind of looks into it and, and thinks, maybe there's something to this um, psycho, psychotherapy thing. It's interesting, because also her father is, is kind of nuts, and this becomes a big burden for her in her life. Now, Chapter 11 basically deals with the breakdown of Polly Andrews and Gus Leroy's relationship. This relationship was established back in Chapter 10 after we met Libby. So we met Libby and we, we established that Gus Leroy was, you know, kind of a jerk. And then we found out later he's having an affair with a member of the group, another member of the group. Uh, in Chapter 11, that affair is going on and it's, you know, it's like a fairly long affair. He's married, of course, and Eventually, he goes back to his wife, as happens with so many affairs, right? So that's, a, you know, the first relationship we really meet, I guess, is Kay and Harold. They're getting married. And then after that, we meet Dottie and her, her love interest. Now, they don't end up marrying. They, she, he takes her virginity, and he, has, he wants to be her lover. But, you know, that falls apart because she ends up having to marry someone who's more right for her, as, as society defines it, right? Um, you know, none of these kind of romantic pairings seem to work out that well for any of these characters. That's the comment I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get at here. Uh, whether they're monogamous, whether they're in a marriage, whether they're affairs or trysts or whatever, they all seem to not work out for any of these women. And maybe that's a comment that Mary McCarthy's making. We, we've seen her very, in her other books, very, very upfront about adultery, about women's sexuality, about women pursuing sexual pleasure in their lives. And she seems to celebrate that and praise that. But at the same time, I think she realizes that, you know, it, it's itself is not a liberatory thing. It's, it's just an aspect of a of modern women's life. And it's something that we shouldn't be moralized about. But it's also not like, as maybe some people in the sexual revolution believed, somehow a, 
a path to total liberation for, for women. So, but anyways, um, yeah, there's even a suggestion here that Gus is interested in Polly more as an, a like a archetypical like communist woman rather than as a as for who she is, right? That you know, that's a communist man should have a lover who's a communist, and that's why he was interested in Polly. But anyways, their relationship ends up breaking down. He goes back with his wife, and that, that's the story of chapter eleven, more or less. Now, there's a little bit of a comment here commentary in this section about kind of the frustration of any kind of relationship this is a an affair but it's true of many it's probably more true of affairs um i guess just because they're not living together right and and when you meet you meet on on whoever's on the terms of whoever's more powerful in the relationship and has more maybe freedom or money and this is what the narrator says quote she discovered a sad little law a man never really called on you when needed when you needed him, but only when you didn't. If you really got absorbed in your ironing or doing your bureau drawers to the point where you didn't want to be interrupted, that was the moment the phone decided to ring. You had to mean it. You had to forget about him honestly and enjoy your own society before it worked. You got what you wanted. In other words, as soon as you saw you could never do without it, which meant if Polly reasoned right, that you never got what you wanted. Practically every other Sunday, Polly gaily found she could do without Gus if she had to, climbing the stairs with a stack of blouses still warm from the iron, would feel quite happy and self-sufficient and think that it might be almost a deprivation to get married. And she wondered if Gus, a block away, puttering away in his kitchen, smoking his pipe, listening to the news on the radio, was thinking the same thing. Yeah, kind of a, a really nice summary there of, of maybe just the, the weirdness of, 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 tr of two people having an affair, trying to get together and both having busy lives, right? And both never really intersecting when they need to, right? Um, really, really great. Well, um, this chapter ends with basically it's very clear that this relationship is going to end. He's going back to his wife, and she, to make the matters worse, worse for her, for Polly, she gets a note from her father, who's bipolar, uh, what we don't call bipolar. I don't know if it's defined in the book, but it's manic depressive, whatever. And basically, the note says, "I'm divorcing your mother, and I need to live with you." And so on top of everything else that Polly's dealing with, her poverty, her, you know, the fact that she's just lost her, her lover, she now has to deal with her you know, father who has mental health issues of his own. So kind of out of the fire into the, out of the fire pan into the fire kind of situation for poor Polly. So that's chapter 11. It's, it's, a, it's a good chapter dealing with just the, the reality, kind of the day-to-day -day drudgery of, of an affair and what all that means for for a young woman. So chapter 12 just carries on Polly's story and it's focusing mostly on Polly's dealing with the fact that her father is living with her and you know her father has mental health issues he, he is bipolar and the main way this manic depressive trait in him manifests in this novel or in this part of the story is that he, he kind of gets he converts to Trotskyism he kind of he becomes a, a full-blown Trotskyist and we've seen this conflict before and like the company she keeps and how it did divide the American left and I don't want to repeat that whole story you can go back and listen to my episodes on that to get a bit of that background I, I don't have much commentary on it it's just that was something that, that was one of the things that divided the left right even before the Nazi Soviet pact it was the Trotskyite Stalinist kind of common turn path right and you know, Trotsky, of course, was kicked out of Russia. 
he fled and he kind of continued writing and inspiring a different vision of communism than what Stalin was pursuing, who had the power in the Soviet Union. Eventually, Trotsky gets killed. But the, the, the show trials famous in the Soviet Union and well known to people who have studied communism and looked at the history of, so, of the Soviet Union, those largely were justified by rooting out the Trotskyists, right? And of course, this gets used by George Orwell in 1984. You know, I guess Goldstein is the character that's kind of the Trotskyite character. Um, it's, you know, her, her father, though, he like his manic depressive character fits into kind of the working class politics of the time because, you know, you need someone who's going to be on, on the picket line. You need some agiprot guy. You need someone who's going to like be selling newspapers, you know, or whatever. And, and, and uh, Henry Andrews was going to be the guy to do that. He was kind of fit into that. Um, but he's a really bad roommate is, is the point of this chapter. And the point of this chapter is how parents can be a burden on their adult children well after the children are like liberated by society, right? Such a important theme, I think, in 1960s thinking about parenting. Uh, I mentioned this, I think, in the last episode, maybe two ago, but it has to be repeated. You know, the this conflict, especially in the sexual revolution, but other things as well, between the, like the new left, right, the SDS. There's this idea in the SDS that like the old people don't know, they're not keeping up. And so we have to liberate ourselves from the parents and their ideas and their values and their entire worldview if we really want to progress the society, right? Um, Bob Dylan's song, Times Are Changing, is all about, it seems to me, how the old people just don't know what the future will be and they can't be the leaders. Uh, or that very wonderful scene in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner where Sidney Poitier confronts his father about his sexual politics. And Sidney Poitier's father said something like, you know, I carried this bag. I, I walked so many miles selling stuff. And Poitier, the character played by Sidney Poitier, says, you had that duty because you brought me into the world to give me the best life I could have. But I don't owe you a damn thing. And I certainly don't owe you obedience to your outdated moral code. Right now, that's, you know, I don't think Henry Andrews is prude or anything like that. The point is, he's just a literal burden on her, right? She's trying to start her own life. She's struggling with poverty and, and other issues, just losing her lover, who may have been a route to some financial independence, maybe probably not, but, you know, she's in this bottom part of the life and her father gets dumped on her and her father has these mental health issues. He's politically kind of radical at a time when maybe that's not uncommon, but it's, it's certainly not making her life any easier. Um, even among socialist circles where there's that divide between Stalinism and Trotskyism. And he's just a financial burden, right? Eventually, Polly has to, has to sell her blood. She's like selling plasma. If you've ever done that, I'm, I've done it. If, if you've never done it, you, I don't know what it entails. But, you know, selling plasma, you have to go in. You have to, I mean, I don't know if it was like in those days, but it's such a hassle. You know, you have to go in. you got to answer the questions, right? And then they take your blood for the blood test because they have to test your blood before they take your, your sample, right? Then they put you in, plug you into this machine for a couple hours. Um, it's, and, and you do that for like 20 bucks, right? It's pretty horrible. Um, now, she's just on blood here, but it's, I get the same kind of sense there that you're really at the end of your, your rope if you're, if you're reduced to that. 
being like a, a vampire or like the victim of a vampire, right? If there really were vampires, there would be people selling themselves to vampires, I'm sure, for, for to pay the rent. I have no doubt of that. Um, anyways, um, towards the end of the chapter, she meets Jim Ridgely, and he's a shrink. Interesting, because there's a kind of a overhang of mental health throughout the Polly Andrews chapters. She's not really mentally ill, but the people in her life are. Like talking about a burden, um, that's certainly there. And she ends up, that's the guy she ends up marrying. I think pretty much all of the group get married except Blakey, I think. Um, it's hard to keep track. There are a lot of characters, and, you know, whatever. I think they pretty much all get married, mostly. Uh, and usually to the right person. That, that's an interesting thing. They all have different relationships, but they tend to marry people that turn out okay for them. Kay certainly doesn't. But Dottie does... Uh, I think... Libby, I don't know if we hear her story about who she marries, but... You know, they're not the worst people. I mean, I, I don't think this is not like an anti-male novel in any way. It's not saying, like, these women were best off if they just, like, abandoned men and did everything on their, on their own. I don't think Mary McCarthy's saying that. I just think she's saying there's so many pitfalls in these relationships of the, of the modern, much more liberated woman, educated, career-minded, that maybe, maybe it's, it's a very different story if this was about working-class women more. I guess Polly's the closest we get to a working-class woman. She falls into the same traps. But if it was a pure working class novel, I think we'd have different stories and different um, concepts. This is more of a bougie story by and large. But anyways, um, that more or less covers the story of Polly Andrews. Like everyone else, they, she appears again at the end with uh, Kay's funeral. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. All right, chapter 13. So this actually carries on Polly's story in a way, but it's really about Kay. Um, we haven't really seen much of Kay since... The first third of the novel or so she showed up a little bit in the middle part of the story but she's kind of come back and and she's been institutionalized so Kay again through her you know mental health is a big issue for her so she's the right character maybe to encounter Kay in the in the asylum basically she's been institutionalized and what happened to her is of course she was in this abusive relationship with Harold Harold was cheating on her um, and Harold along with uh, Noreen, not a member of the group, but of the same class at Bastard College, uh, having the affair with Harold, conspire to basically get Kay locked up. And that's where she is. So this is actually a really, really brutal um, chapter about about this, this, this institutionalization of, of Kay. Yeah, Polly ends up like working as a nurse uh, at this... Um, at this asylum, that's when Kay shows up, right? So the first part of the chapter is about Kay, um, you know, in, encountering Polly in this, in this asylum. Eventually, she gets freed from it and, and is able to go back home. She divorces Harold. And later on, she dies. She dies at some point between chapters, the events of chapter 13, and when we pick up again in chapter 15. It's never really explained what happens. It's kind of a mystery. It, it's it's It's... We're never really told whether it was suicide. I mean, there's a good argument to be made of suicide or an accident or whatever. But she died young of of um, happenstance, I guess. Could very well be a suicide, given what Kay has gone through in her in her short life. But yeah, a lot of this is about Kay's return after the asylum and her her dealing with with Harold, who, I mean, obviously, uh, divorces in the works here. Uh, he's he's 
sleeping with everyone, it seems. It, it, I don't think Noreen's the only affair he had. He, I don't think he ever was exclusive with, with Kay. I, I really like, though, what Mary McCarthy does with Harold's character. Showing him, when we first meet him, he's not presented as a bad guy. He's not spend it, presented as odious. He seems to be a good match for Kay. He's friendly to Dottie. I mean, that's really where we see him sort of shine. Is where He's very sympathetic to Dottie's desires to have birth control. Very, very helpful to Dottie. But, you know, as we learn more about him, and as Kay learns more about him, it's revealed just how disgusting he really is. You know, to the point where he actually has his wife thrown into asylum. Um, it, it seems almost in part so he can have more, more fun with Noreen. Now, I think to now one more thing to say about chapter thirteen, and it's a big thing. Is so much of this novel, as is so much of second wave feminism in America, about the institution versus the individual, right? I think first wave feminism, the suffragist movement, is really about formal legal rights. Uh, legal equality, the right to vote, the right to own property, right? Those kinds of things. The right to run for office. Those formal legal rights. Um, it, it, uh, now, certainly many feminists of that era talked about things like marriage. You know, Sus uh, not Susan B. I'm thinking of um, William Cady Stanton, who is kind of famous for her pictures of being with kids, right? She's a motherly feminist. She, I mean, she wrote a lot about family and the burden of, of childbearing on, on, on women and the bird, you know, the, the pressures of, of raising children and all that stuff. She, she wrote this wonderful essay called, um, oh, now I don't forget who it is, but the, the whole point is like, is that women give birth by themselves, whatever social help you can give them, what, you know, something men can never experience or be a part of. And in those days, having a baby was a bit like Russian roulette, right? Not that many women died in childbirth, but it was something faced alone without anesthesia or anything. Uh, you might have the help of other women. In those days, it was often women, but it was it was solitary, right? And so they did. First wave feminists did talk about these things, but not to the degree that second wave feminists did. And and for them, it was much more the individual versus the institution. That was the unfought battle. That was what was not yet won. And those institutions are things like the affair, the workplace, the the university, um, the the marriage is a big one, right? And so the fact that Mary McCarthy puts Kay directly in an institution to show just a, you know the, another level of it, right? And I think to a certain degree, and you know, if I were to go back to this with you know with the idea of doing a theme, like a literary theme, I think it'd be very interesting. If anyone needs an idea for a paper, you could do this. I think is contrast marriage with Kay's time in an institution and see how they're essentially two sides of the same coin or something. They're both institutions that, that work to um, repress women, or at least repress Kay. I mean, Kay is, is torn between two odious institutions, marriage first, and then later the, the, the asylum. And that's why I think it's likely she kills herself, because there's no way out for her. There's no escape. Those are the two choices. Even if she divorces, what's left for her? It's kind of like when the Nora goes home question, right? Of course, uh, Henrik Ibsen wrote that The Doll's House, that very, very famous play. Um, but it was in China, actually, that a, a writer named Lu Xun wrote an essay called What Happens When Nora Goes Home, which is actually a pretty profound feminist question. Uh, what happens when Nora leaves home? Because, yeah, what was there for her? Maybe, you know, in Sweden, who knows? In Ibsen's world, maybe there was opportunities for her 
I don't know. Ibsen never really takes up that question, at least not in that play. But Lushwan is saying essentially what's possible, what's the options for Nora is prostitution or another marriage. And, you know, I think that's probably the case here for Kay too. And that's why I think a suicide is likely. But I, I think this is a really powerful chapter just because it gets to the heart of the matter. Saying if if the struggle of second of feminism today is the individual versus the institution, the way Emma Goldman talked about all history, what better place to kind of centralize that than in an asylum? Um, but really, really great stuff in this chapter, and, and it allows gives Polly and Kay some interactions. But Kay is just so beaten down by this point in the novel that it's pretty hard to read. But um, that's the story of chapter 13, a really important chapter, I think. Um, and it kind of leads us into the climax. It is, in many ways, the climax of the novel. Chapter 14 is, and 15 are both much more denouement types of chapters. So chapter 14, uh, where we see Pris again. Pris, we met for one chapter before, and her main struggle was this pressure to breastfeed, right? And I, I think what's kind of tragic about this, you, you see in the earlier chapter, Maybe it's not tragic, but what happened, what, I mean, Pris's story later on was she was being pressured by her family and by, like, fads to breastfeed her kid, and it was really hard for her. The kid was crying all the time, hungry all the time. She, she went to doctors to try to, you know, in this case, you know, formula would have been best for, for Kay, kid Stephen, just because, and it would have made everything easier for her, right? And, you know, I, I, when, when I had a kid, her mother breastfed the kid and we did cloth diapers you know we did that kind of progressive hippie stuff and that was the right choice for us at the time it's not the right choice necessarily for everyone at every time right and i think that freedom is is key to the what feminists talk about right it's you know it's the same way with makeup right it's it's being feminist doesn't mean taking off makeup it means women should have the right to choose to use makeup or not and not to be punished for those choices right it's the same like with breastfeeding if you want to do it and that's right for you great and you shouldn't be punished for for needing to breastfeed in the park or something right or you shouldn't have you should have that 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 freedom and i, I just thought it was really well done um, here though we see pris after some period of time and apparently some struggle with steven and and she's more or less come to terms with with breastfeeding and even internalize those arguments to a degree. Now she meets Noreen, who's now had has her own kid. Now it's not with Harold. Remember, Harold and Noreen had a had an affair. She first was married to that guy Putt. Remember Putnam, the guy who couldn't get it up for her. That's why she was having the affair with Harold. She later marries this banker, um, a Freddie Rogers. So and he's Jewish. So Noreen has. You know, his kid is half Jewish, and there's discussion of what that means. In a, in a period, time period where anti-Semitism was on the rise globally, obviously. And that's part of the subtext of this chapter. Um, but largely, it's, it's Noreen and Pris talking about their experiences raising children, right? And I just what struck me is how much Pris had kind of internalized what her husband wanted out of her at the end. Like, especially in terms of breastfeeding, she's kind of... We don't see the struggles that she went through earlier in the chapter. She doesn't really talk about them. It's it's like it's in the past, and she's fought those battles, and now she's in a either you know it's almost like actually I thought about Winsome Smith, Winsome Smith at the end of 1984, right? When 
everything's been beaten out of him and he's totally accepting of the party, right? Kind of I felt that way with Pris at this point in the story. Because I remembered the struggle she went through in the early chapter and I didn't buy fully her her kind of... Um, I mean, she's... But part of it, of too, is, is her just engaging in bougie women's talk on the playground kind of thing about kids, right? You talk about kids, you talk about those those issues of being a mother with a, with someone you sort of know. So that that's sort of part of it, but I just I just felt someone who's who's Pris is someone who has no longer has that capacity to risk it's even a little. I guess she never did, but you know, whatever but in that earlier chapter we saw her anxiety and her her struggle with breastfeeding. That's not there anymore. All right, so we're pretty much done here. Chapter 15 is, we're just told Kay has died, and we, we don't know the details of the situation. I, I think a suicide's likely, but it's never confirmed one way or another. Really, the only member of the group we haven't really met is Lakey. We actually met her in the first chapter. Eleanor Eastlake is her name. They called her Lakey. She, she went to Europe, and, and we don't hear from her. We don't get her story at all. While she's in Europe, she's come back, and I guess I think it's for the funeral, or she just comes. No, she comes back because of the war. She comes back because of the war, and she's with this woman who's her lesbian lover. So, you know, I don't know if this is a missed opportunity, or or as far as Mary McCarthy thought she should go or wanted to go. I guess it's as far as she wanted to go. I I don't think. Mary McCarthy seems like a pretty kind of person who likes to censor herself. But, you know, this is the window into lesbianism. And the only one we really get. Um, we got a little bit of a window into someone who's maybe pursuing a, a more asexual life. Thinking of... Um, just a second, let me find... Is that Helena? I think Helena, I got the sense, was more kind of indifferent to sexuality. But, but Lakey... Was was a lesbian, and she has to go to Europe to, in, to. That story has to be told like in through her going to Europe and coming back with this lesbian lover, and I don't know. I guess it's maybe it's not acceptable in America at the time, and that's that's why she has to. Do, I don't know why it's acceptable in Europe at a time when Europe is becoming much more conservative. Um, I don't see evidence here that they're freer in Europe than in America in this regard, but it's, it's more of a global kind of a lack of acceptance of homosexuality among women. But she is that. And, and, and it's really, we get a little bit of her story here, but Lakey is probably the one woman we know the least about. And maybe that's not surprising. In a novel mostly about heterosexual women engaged, you know, in heterosexual relationships and their other struggles, you know, the only way Mary McCarthy can tell the story of a lesbian woman is to have her off the page for most of the novel and just show up with this woman who's obviously her lover. Um, but anyways, that's chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the is the funeral. Now, I didn't take as careful notes on the last third of the novel. I just wasn't, I think I read it in a place where I think I ran out of lead, so I didn't take notes. So most of that was off the top of my head. I had a few things sketched out somewhere, but... Um, that's that's going to be it. Um, yeah, I've talked for like two and a half hours about the group. Um, really, really great novel, I think. It's so, so good. It's These women really stand out. Their stories and their struggles are very real. 
and and they're meaningful and they're politically significant and it's it's a well-told story um, I think it's so it's, it's a little bit different than some of her earlier novels her early novels are really about people like weird people in a weird situation and some of these people are weird but by and large they're they're fairly typical middle-class educated women and dealing and, and I think that's what makes it politically important right you can't be politically significant talking about weirdos doing weird things in a way I mean I guess with the intentional communities stuff in the oasis it's kind of interesting but that's not what most people are going to do right if you want to be politically significant you have to you know it's not you have to yeah yeah it's like who's who said this once it was in some online talk I was listening to about anarchist politics or leftist politics and the the argument of the guy was like if you want to be an an anarchist or a communist or something, you got to organize people at the sports bar. You can't organize them at like some, you know, poetry reading that five people go to, right? The struggles where people are. And I think that's what makes this an important feminist text is these are typical women of a certain class by and large, certainly. But, you know, they're not upper class. Only one of them is really rich, rich. Uh, most of them are, they need jobs, they need husbands. You know, some are certainly lower class. They don't have no other support like like Polly, but Polly Andrews. But mostly there are people who need jobs, need an income and and end up marrying if for no other reason than because that is an income that they can rely on. All right. Well, just really important novel. So many good issues on birth control, on, on marriage, on divorce, on child rearing what the pressures of that on the workplace lesbianism just slipped in at the end a little bit uh, you know it would be nice if there's a little bit more about that and more to say about that but it slipped in at the end uh, but yeah i really like this novel um i think it's my favorite mary mccarthy novel of the ones we've we've read and i've read enough of the other two next two to say this is probably going to be my favorite so but i think that's going to be it that's all i'm going to say about the group for for now um coming up i'm going to talk about birds of america i'm going to spend two episodes this is another little cheat i do it from time to time birds of america is probably 280 pages but i'm going to do, do it in two episodes um just you know cut it down the middle um but i don't know looking ahead i just looked at this and i thought when i started reading it that maybe this will be hard to talk about for three whole episodes so i'm just cutting it in half so the next two episodes will look at uh, Mary McCarthy's 1971 novel. Wow, that's a big gap. The, the group was written in 1963, and it took her, took her eight years to come out with her next novel, Birds of America. She wrote other stuff, though. She was, I think, doing a lot of nonfiction writing at the time. But yeah, Birds of America, her, her second-to-last novel. We'll look at that in the next two episodes. But in the meantime, if you have any thoughts, if you've picked up the group, if you read it, if you've seen the movie... I haven't, I haven't seen it yet myself, but if you can recommend it, please tell me why. Uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave a comment below and, or leave a review on iTunes. I will read that and I will probably reply to you and, and I, I appreciate it. So let me know what you think. In the meantime, prepare. If you're reading along with me, read Birds of America by, by Mary McCarthy. I look forward to talking about it. It's a very, very different novel. It's it's the first novel not dealing with a group of any type. It's about one dude, and he's a bit weird. Um, and he hangs out in Europe, 
for a while, part of his life. I don't even, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm going to approach it. It's it's a it's a bizarre novel in many ways. But it's coming up next. So, um, yeah. Thanks for listening. I will see you next time with my thoughts about Birds of America. I'm tired of all your crowing How you and your hens play While holding a couple in my arms And others on the way This chicken's done for a pernest And I'm ready